Hello, this is Chuka here on another episode of We Talk Our Health, Saving the Underserved, creating awareness in underserved communities and people living in low to middle income countries. Today we have uh, Kira, Dr. Kira Rajaka, and um, she is um, an alumni and we graduated at the same year, 98, so there is that connection there, but she's technically like a superstar because <laughs> you know um, she's um, a, a strong advocate for um, child health and, um, and um, education and you can catch some of our videos on YouTube and Instagram they have been kind of helpful to me as well so I'll let her do the rest of the introduction and carry on here I think that's all the introduction I primarily practice in pediatrics emergency and as a pediatrician, I see all things kids, but that's all the introduction. So I think it's more, um, for what I understand from Choka, it's more of like a general open discussion about like anything pediatrics, anything pediatrics emergency, even though uh, my special school is emergency, I see mostly anything kids that come in. So I don't have any presentation, uh, PowerPoint slides, you know, what I discussed with Choka. So I'm open to any questions everyone has. Of course, like anything that's very direct to a particular child every child is different so i may not be able to give any like medical recommendations like that's very individualized but um i think it's mostly like an open discussion about kids and questions general discussion and i guess we can use the chat and then whatever else comes up what what are the most common things you see in the er that say someone could just take care of our home rather than having to bring the child to the er yeah okay so i think it depends on the season like now, and then based on where we are too, based on it now, we're seeing a lot of like uh, viruses, like the, the causing the fever, the cough, the congestion. And I think one of the things that scares parents a lot is the fevers. Every time a child pops a fever, we commonly see families maybe they end up in emergency room or calling their doctor within like within 24 hours of having a fever, which I know it's like that number scares a little bit. measures the parent's temperature, they say it's 105 or like 40 degrees centigrade. Which essentially the fever, the lumbar in itself is something that scares family, which is not something that should if we understand the mechanism. Because the fever essentially means that your body is trying to fight an infection. Unless your child has any other medical problem that the doctor says, or every time they have a fever, show up in the ER. It's something you can start managing at home. Or unless you have a baby that's younger than three months old, then when they have, have a fever, you show up because we need to do more testing. But if your child caught the fever, I think the first thing is to think about it not just the number, even when you measure the temperature, it's not just the number. What do they look like? Because your child may have a fever and they're actively like running around, pushing down things, but you don't need to treat them. You can give them some time and let them recover. Or if they have a fever and they look like they're tired, you can treat before you show up to the ear. I think that's that concept of fever needs to show up, fever needs to be tested and not necessarily. So it's about like looking what, what the, um, taking a look at what the child is. And then the next one is in the same line of the viruses is like when they have a cold, like even my sister still does the same thing. Oh, that she's running, she has the running nose or she's coughing now, which is scary, but there's also a mechanism like we have viruses that cause us to have those symptoms. So you can start with the basics of helping them blow their nose based on how old they are or like suctioning. Because the younger babies, because they don't know how to blow their nose and they can only breathe from their uh, nose versus us that we can breathe from our mouth when we're uncomfortable. You can get rid of the uh, suction their nose just to give them some relief, a lot of fluids because the more hydrated they are, the more they can walk through all the mucus and make it easier to come out. So those things are like taking care of those. And then the cough, like cough is still like your body trying to like manifest an infection. It doesn't mean we go to the pharmacy and we start buying cough medicines. They don't work. 
they really do a lot of them don't work. So we might try like honey that been shown to help with the cough if your child is older than 12 months old. And then if you notice the child is continuing to cough, we're going on the four or five with high fever, or you notice that they're struggling to breathe, then maybe they need to be seen, to be listened to, to get an extra seen with pneumonia. But usually within the first few days, the fever, mild cough may just be a virus that their body is trying to walk through and does not necessarily need like less rush to the ear. And then another common one is belly pain. Like abdominal, once you see a, a child says their belly is hurting, like we as parents are like, oh, what, okay, what else? What do I do? Do I start Tylenol? Do I give Pepto Bismol? Do I start this? When do I show up? Which is valid. It's a valid concern. But when we walk through the sides of the stomach, like the different parts of the stomach has like the different um, parts of the body that's there. If you understand where it is, then you can tell why your child has a belly. You can tell families if the child complains that belly hurts, based on how old they are, let them tell you what side. Like if it's because the belly just goes that way. What point? Let them point out which way it is. I mean, actually, there are pictures online that I show you the lane variables where the intestine is. A lot of them, when they point in the middle, majority of the 90% of kids are constipated. And that's one of the reasons why they show up. Of course, there might be more serious things, but constipation, I usually say, let them show you where their belly hurts. If it's like in the middle or somewhere on the left side, encourage them, give them some pain medicine, let them go sit down, see if they can poop and feel better. Sometimes they do. And they may not even need to struggle. How those come in? You know, you've got to talk to them. Sometimes they get enemas. Sometimes they medicine, and they just like bouncing off the wall in the end. You wonder, oh, why did you show up? And then that things that we can try to do um, at home. Of course, they're just like on the right where your appendix is. They're persistently vomiting, and then you then get them to feel better. You give them pain medicine, and they're not feeling better. Then that's another reason to show up. But sometimes we have like kids in the waiting room within a few minutes, hours, and they're like we're feeling well, they're ready to go. So those are some things. And then um, I think like during the summer season, now we're talking about like injuries, the way they fell down, they scratched their legs, or they have like a cut. So one of the things we learned by like, growing up is to wash with sodium, uh, hydrogen, uh, hydrogen peroxide and alcohol and going to see or multiple things done. Actually, wounds can be done so much easier. Like all you need is water and soap to wash the wound because when you start to put more things, you're complicating it. So based on how big or small it is, you can actually wash it off put uh, Vaseline or Aquaphor or maybe Vaseline. We don't need like triple ointment because if some kids are allergic to it, I'm just going to cover it. But like small wounds can start at home to manage it. Of course, if you have an injury and you're noticing that maybe it looks more, what we call like deformed, looks like a scrap, of course, they need to be seen. So those are the major, um, uh, some of the major things that we can start with um, at home, depending on the season. There's a whole lot more, but these are the ones that I remember for that. I have, I have one question here, and then I think he has a hand raised up. Let me read the questions first. Mm. Is it recommended to give iron su supplements daily to toddlers until they are 12 years old to keep to help them develop bones uh, set because of the possibility they are not eating all the veggies and balanced diet due to people? Actually, yes and no. When it comes to vitamins and supplements, this is mostly unless your child has any medical problems that prevents their body from absorbing nutrients, um, that prevent their body from absorbing nutrients, or they are pooping out a lot, not having like malabsorption, they are not going in, or they are starving. Okay. Bodies are actually able to manage and develop. Like even the kids that are not eating all the balanced diet, their bodies are still able to make up because the body has the weight to capture and absorb the ones, the minimal ones you eat. But of course, if it's a child who has any medical problem, they need additional supplements. Then when it comes to age, if they're, um, of course, younger than six months who are still breast or formula fed, basically get most of their supplements from that, and they don't really need extra, except vitamin D, because vitamin D, unless it's a formula that's fortified with iron and vitamin D, breast milk does not have a that. So when they start to get towards nine months and one year, those are the ages we actually recommend to start adding iron 
or best implement test their um, what we call like um, red blood count because a lot of them tend to start getting anemic because now their body is not uh, they didn't get enough from the parents. They're still not eating the regular adult food we're eating that includes the veggies. So they seem to have a gap and a lot of them get anemic. So if you have a child who is like between nine months, uh, they, uh, from age of nine months to like two years, because the one, they want to drink a lot of milk, they're not eating enough. And because milk has high calcium content, it actually prevents you from absorbing the iron. So they tend to be anemic. So that's the age gap. Or if you have an older child who like drinks a lot of milk, things that have high dairy content and doesn't eat a lot of foods, then that might be a child you may consider putting on iron. Then in terms of vitamin D, like almost all of them, if all of vitamin D levels are all going to be low. So you can give them those little supplements, but it is something you have to do like consistently, not necessarily unless you're super low. So that's the thing. It's not that they have to be on it. They still get from their diet based on how our body absorbs. But if you want to, it's vitamin D and I would be like the two supplemental vitamins we actually like recommend. You had a hand up at some point. Yeah, hi, sorry. Um, so sir, um, I, I think I have two questions actually based on the three that you had spoken about and the vitamin D. So the first one, you had mentioned that the, the fever is actually a way of fighting of infection, right? So when I've heard of situations where the same high fever triggers convulsion, so is it really the fever that triggers the convulsion or is there an underlying ailment or whatever is underlying to it that may trigger it? Yeah. So um, two different things. I know we, uh, when it comes to fevers, we're usually worried about the height, like you mentioned. And a lot of people talk about the fever that causes brain damage. But in so many studies done, the fever that's actually high enough to cause brain damage or even possible brain damage is good enough to what we call like 108 Fahrenheit or like 42 degrees centigrade. Anything lower than that is just that some people's bodies are prone to have higher fever versus others. So it doesn't necessarily mean that having higher fevers means it's bad. It's about one, what's the cause of the fever and what are the other things each child, what are the symptoms they have and how do they look? So those are the three main things we look at. And then when it comes to convulsion, so there's been like a lot of back and forth uh, uh, studies done before. Initially, they said it's a high fever. They found it wasn't true. They even kids with fevers as low as uh, 38 versus 42 can still have febrile convulsions. And then they said, okay, it's how fast they rise it. And now the discussion is that there's no, we're unsure what actually causes those febrile convulsions to happen. We don't think it's a high to the fevers because those lower can have it. And we don't, we're not sure if it's how fast it rises. What we know is one, there are some people that are genetically prone to having febrile convulsion, which means it kind of runs in the family. So let's say there are five children. If one of them has it, another one might have it in the family. Does that mean that one more person might have it? We don't know. We just know it runs in the family, then the possibility of having it. But so now based on that, a lot of parents might treat a fever once they notice the child having fever to prevent the convulsion. But it's still not 100%. You can treat your child's fever and they still have febrile convulsions. And that's still okay because we don't know if it stops it or not. Because a lot of kids, you may not even know they're about to have a fever until they have the convulsion because their body is already working on it. And then you check them, then you realize they have a fever. So because I have a lot of parents that feel bad and say, should I treat the fever? But it's not their fault because the child didn't manifest the symptom until they had the febrile convulsion. And then they have to, they now check the temperature and they have the fever. But the good thing we consider that is febrile convulsion is one of the most benign, which is mild form of convulsion that kids have because they outgrow it. And a lot of them have no other seizures as they grow, unless it's the ones that have like multiple seizures within a short period of time, which we call complex. And it just keeps going and going that their brain does not recover in between seizures. But a lot of the kids between six months and five years that have febrile seizures, 
have nothing else and they do well. Okay, thank you. Then the other question I had, right, is on vitamin D that you mentioned. So does it have to do with um, genetics? So um, giving an example for people that are outside of Nigeria, right? I know that, for instance, I know I was told severally to give my babies, well, my kids, um, vitamin D when they were babies because of where we come from, because we are of our extraction, right? Um, so I'm just wondering, because we don't get enough sun as well here, so I'm just wondering if it has anything to do with that or can anyone, irrespective of the extraction, be given vitamin D as a baby? So, um, yes and no. So anyone can actually be given vitamin D unless you're giving multiple doses, uh, unless you're giving too high uh, doses. It doesn't really affect, it doesn't make them sick if they're getting daily vitamin D doses. And yes, it has to do with the skin. I think when you have black, darker skins have are more likely to be vitamin D deficient based on absorption and the skin and the skin type. But here also outside the country, because they're not getting as much sun as we do in other places, they might be vitamin D deficient based on that. So like two different reasons, based on our skin type, but also they're not getting enough sun, so they might be deficient too. Thank you. Wow. Any more questions? So what what are the red flag signs per se specifically for, for our kids if they have fever? When do you okay. just need to like jump and just get them to the ER straight away or call EMS? Yeah. So any child that's unconscious, like that's like straight up needs to be seen. Any child that has fevers and can't move their neck, even when you give medication, because now we're worried about meningitis. So with meningitis, they're having a headache and then because the neck and the where the spine passes, when they try to turn their neck, the whole like spine area is limited. So they can't move their neck or any child that has fevers and they're breathing hard, they can't breathe or... So it may just be virus, but then because you can't breathe, you need that kind of support. If you have fever and you're vomiting persistently that you can't even give, you can't keep the medicine down, that's also one that needs to be seen. Or if they have a fever and the type, there are different types of rashes, especially one that we get concerned about, uh, meningitis, the rash that when you, I don't describe, but they call it like, if you want to take a look, check online, it's a uh, popular, which means it's like bleeding on top of the skin with the rash. So you can press it down. So we are concerned that it has to do with, it's, it can happen in kids that have meningitis. So we want to see them again immediately. Or if your child has fevers and they're acting with pooping blood, this bloodish uh, uh, poop when they go or bleeding from other places, you also get concerned about fevers. Or a child has, maybe a child has been sick for a couple of days or months, all of a sudden spikes the fever and you're noticing what we call like lymph nodes on the side that are super big and huge. We also get concerned about like cancer and want them screened again. So. Those are some of the like red flags. Thank you. I think so. Question. See, some doctors say Tylenol and Advil can be given to kids together to break very high fever. Others have asked to stick to one. Some say don't use Advil on kids. What's your take? So you can actually give both. I think the only thing we, we don't recommend for kids is aspirin because it has some effect on liver and uh Tylenol is acetaminophen, which is paracetamol, and then Advil is ibuprofen, which is the same thing as Motrin. So you can give both. I think when we understand what we're giving, so when we are treating kids, if it's for fever, we're treating their discomfort. Maybe they, they have fever and they're uncomfortable, but not necessarily uh, having fever and um, uncomfortable. So we're not necessarily treating the number. So you can give uh, Tylenol now, and after a couple of hours, you can give ibuprofen. You can still give them both together. Some kids may respond to one compared to the other one. So I'm not, I don't have any problem with, you can give both. It depends on which one your child responds to or which one gets them comfortable. Tylenol is every four hours. And then Advil, which is ibuprofen, is every six hours. And they work differently. 
So it's not like, uh, what do they call it? It's not like you're giving overdose because they want two different mechanisms. They don't do the same thing. So that's why you're able to give them two. And I think one thing to add here is uh, when we are treating our kids' fevers, it's important to know, make sure we're giving the right dose. Because for adults, we dose based on every generalized adult or maybe unless one that is super B. But for kids, their medications are dosed based on weight. So if you're giving based on the dose of like two years ago and your child has grown, they are taller, then you may not necessarily be able to, then they might not be treated. What you're treating might not be working because then their doses are different. Are there anything peculiar to um, kids from Nigeria or from Africa in general that we should know about in terms of, well, emergencies, allergies, uh, things that you see more often in that uh, specific population here? You mean seeing the specific population here in terms of, expect, can you ask that again? I think I'm not completely. No, I mean, is there anything that we should know in our own setting, like back home um, in regards to the emergencies that may be more peculiar to, to us? Or things that you see here that is more peculiar to to populations from Nigeria or Africa, maybe due to our diet or the uh, culture or the way we live our lives, just yeah. In- um, hmm. That that I see here or that I used to see in Nigeria. Which one is it? Because I think some of the things is I think one of the things is if we, especially when we get sick is dehydration. I don't know if. I'm not sure if that's what you, I'm trying to figure out what your question is. Yeah, both, both, both when you've experienced here and experienced yeah. yeah, so I think one of the things is how we, uh, one, how we manage cough and uh, viruses, viruses, cough and cold is we're very quick to jump to take like cough medication, but you know, of course, pharmacies want to sell. So all those cough medicines have a whole mix. I know here also, they buy a lot of it, but they have a whole mix, especially and places in Nigeria are not regulated. So they have like a whole mix of medication in the bottle that we're not sure what we're drinking. So I remember they would have kids who come in super sleepy from the medication they do because we're not sure what the combinations are in the bottle. The other thing is how we manage uh, diarrhea, vomiting, especially when it comes to dehydration. Sometimes we lose count and forget that when it comes to those, those losses, because when they're pooping a lot, they're losing a lot of fluid. And the goal is not necessarily to treat when it comes to kids treating the um, the most common reason why they have the vomiting and diarrhea, just like a virus that I'm trying to get rid of. So I literally jump towards like emojium to stop the pooping, but that's not that's not what we're supposed to do because your body's trying to fight something off. We're supposed to control or help replace what they're losing by trying to hydrate them. So like slow fluids, uh, making sure they're eating and drinking. Also, I don't really want to eat, but I'm wanting to drink more so that way they can get hydrated and not and pre- prevent them from ending up in the hospital. So those are the two main things. And then, of course, the convulsion, what we used to do before, which I think a lot of people don't do anymore. When kids have convulsion, we're trying to stop them from biting their tongue, which my mom did a lot, and putting stuff inside the mouth to make sure they don't bite their tongue. But like the accurate first aid of when they have convulsion, putting them on the side, making sure they're safe, and just like timing and recording the convulsion because the duration is what's going to help you know when you need to take them in. Or the duration is also the type recording is also going to help you tell what type it is and if it's one that needs more um like evaluation done. But besides that, I think a lot of the other things that it's pretty uh, similar. Um, and then as regards food and obesity, it depends on the location you're practicing. In Ohio, it's a little bit different here from Dallas, but I know that what we have available to in Nigeria now, there's obesity is like a worldwide problem now because we have access to different type of fast food, our lives are fast, that we're trying to make it easier for our kids to eat anything while we want to go. So now it makes it, makes it more, much easier for kids to be exposed to fast food versus other nutrient things that are more nutritious. 
Thank you. I know you've mentioned, you've, you've showed this in your video a few times on, on YouTube about, I think, um, kids swallowing foreign objects, especially coins and putting stuff in their, in their noses and ears. And there, is there something that, you know, folks need to know about that and what to do if, if that happens? Because some people just say, wait until they poop it out or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on, it depends on the object, like things going to kids. The only, the only thing that they, everything they want to go in, every single thing goes in their mouth, nose, and those, every single orifice in their body besides food. They don't want to eat the food, but they want everything else. So it depends on what it is. Of course, the ones that are super dangerous, I think one main thing that is best for, if we have it in the house to remove our savings, bottom batteries, those are the ones, those round, small ones, because they're one of the most dangerous things that kids can swallow because one, because it's super small, you may not even know they swallowed it unless they tell you, and those things can start to cause damage and just like intestines within like two hours. But if your child ever swallows the button battery and they are older than two, uh, excuse me, older than twelve months, you need to start giving honey. There's a particular dose, ten ml every ten minutes up until six doses while you're heading to get them seen, because those are the things that need to be taken out. Because they've shown that the honey can just like coat the um, button battery and protect it or prevent it from doing any damage. If it's a bead in the nose or like objects in the nose, like Chick already mentioned, and you can see, then the first thing you can try at home, especially if you're comfortable, is like the mother's teeth, which essentially means, so if the bead is in the right nose, you plug the left and then blow into their mouth forcefully, and the bead just flies out through the other nose, through the nose where it is. And the reason is because the ear nose and throat are all connected, that can easily make you come out. Of course, if that doesn't work, then you might need to get seen. If a child swallows a coin, what to do depends on what symptoms they're having. Of course, if they're choking and can't breathe, you want to do the, what we call the maneuver abdominal trials or trying to do the, the choking maneuver first so it can come out. But if they're not choking, uh, actively running around the whole place, yes, it's by doing x-ray of the things that as long as it's passed through the feeding tube or suffocants and it's down to the belly, teeth are able to pick it out completely if they have no symptoms. So what to do with things that coins depends on the symptoms they have what you, uh, or, uh, or where the coin is. A mosquito, just swallow it and don't have anything. You can just watch things like coin, mega small object, paper. As long as they have no symptoms, a lot of them poop it out and they do fine. We just have to check the poop every time they go to see if it's in poop or not. Because my kid has a lot of allergies and um, you know, we've had two, two occasions where we've been concerned about it. Um, you know, what kind of things should someone with a child that has frequent allergies do and uh, have at home? And what kind of tests should they go for? Because um, my understanding is over time, these allergies get better as they age. So, you know, say you have a two or three year old and you're concerned about it over time, what tests should you do yearly or or seasonally, just just in general? And then um, if they have, what kind of signs would you be worried about? Like if you're having a severe reaction, uh, what should you do? I think that there's some allergies that kids are able to uh, grow out of, but there are others that they may not be able to grow out of. Like things like milk, eggs, uh, dairy, they can grow out of it. But things like fish and nuts are more difficult. They tend to, as they grow, the allergy continues with them. So when they're younger than one, uh, you can try it and see what they do. As they're getting into the toddler years, they might try it again and they rest. But yeah, sometimes they recommend they need them to like five, or, depending on the, the allergy they're seeing, you're like, yeah, when they are five to seven, and then deciding they need to be tested again. And that means like completely avoiding those foods until they get retested again. Because things like fish, um, seafood, or like nuts, when you have the allergy, a lot of them tend to have like a severe reaction, measured anaphylaxis. 
But what, what, what happens is that when they have the rash, they tend to have like their throat about to close and they can't breathe. So we tend to hold on if they had one reaction before and not like persistently continue unless they get retested. In kids who've never had allergies before, it's difficult to say to avoid the food if they haven't tried it unless there's a strong family history. Maybe multiple kids in the house have like allergies and you want to see, and especially if they want to do the testing before they try the food. Although now they still recommend trying the food and having like medications like uh, the trees, which is very tech at home in case anything happens. And then one the other question, so there was another question asked about, oh, when do they do tests? So the testing they can do, there's options for like skin testing, blood testing, there are multiple options to do. It just depends on the allergies and what type of food they're testing for. The most common ones that mostly really do the skin testing and expose the child and see how their body responds versus where they do the blood testing. So it's... It kind of depends. If your child is like two to three and has had allergic reactions before and they still react to the they like twice, they may give them call and get, give them some time to grow and decide to request again. And if they've had like something that's close to uh, an anaphylactic reaction, first of all, I think folks might want to know what an anaphylactic reaction is and if what kind of signs and symptoms that you should worry about when that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of things should 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 we have at hand and um, if they have that reaction, what else do we need to do um, in that situation? Yeah. So when it comes to like medicines to have at home for allergies or maybe every home is, it used to be Benadryl before. That used to be our go-to. But because Benadryl has a lot of side effects in kids, for some kids, it makes them super uh, aggressive, agitated, too sleepy, hallucinating. We're switching to the ones they call like saturated, like claritine, zeroteric. Those are options to always have at home, especially when you have like kids that are growing because they're not going to respond to what or who's going to have an allergic reaction to another one. The most common things that kids manifest when it comes to like mild allergic reaction is like the rash. So they have like this rash that looks um, far skin. It will not look red. It might look like darker. I have like wheels around it. It looks swollen. If you have a lighter skin, then it might look red and it's super itchy. Some kids may also have like swelling around the face and lips. Those are a little bit milder form of the reaction. And some uh, um, kids, you can have like genital swollen. Some kids have like their scrotum swollen or their vulva area swollen too from a reaction. And then if you're talking about now more severe reaction is when you have the rash and maybe the kid is complaining about their belly hurting or having vomiting just after they've been exposed to one product level. Or they also have been, um, they can't breathe, they haven't telling in their throat, it's curdling or they're holding their throat. Those are severe form of reaction that you have to do, use what we call the epinephrine, the shot. Because the Benadryl and the Zyrtec ones don't reverse that type of reaction. They need the shot. So they technically have to get that shot. So then I think that's what especially when we have kids who are being exposed to foods for the first time, watching out for the rashes, the vomiting. But it has to be related to a recent exposure or the food they've been exposed to, not just like multiple, like two days later, then they're not having the reaction. It has to be closed within a few minutes or hours of exposure to the food. Have you had any experiences with bleach baths for children with allergic dermatitis and empatigo? Yeah, they, this is actually very safe. We we uh, do it a lot, especially for kids that have flare-ups, uh, flare like eczema, allergic dermatitis and empatigo. Just to explain, so bleach bath essentially means having like a whole tub of bath and putting bleach inside. And it's not just like a huge the whole bottle of bleach. It's, I think, I have to remember the mix. I think it's one bath of water with like um, half a cup of bleach. And the reason is you're trying to get rid of all the um, bacteria or the super infection on the skin because kids that have eczema allergic dermatitis are prone to getting infected over and over again. So they keep having the infection on the skin. So you're trying to decolonize them. 
they want to get rid of all those bacteria. And when you do, there's a couple of things, especially when they fill up a lot, they actually might recommend doing it every week. And it actually works pretty well. Of course, if you notice their skin is dried out too much, they might tell them to stop. Um, but this actually works like pretty well. We recommend it a lot. If they have, but if they have any open wounds at the time, because bleach can burn, you may have to hold off till it's healed with antibiotics. If they have any active growth, has to heal completely before you can do a bleach bath. But yeah, we, do, we actually recommend it. Into some of the realm of you know, vaccines um, uh, in general, um, what vaccines should kids get? And even up to, I mean, their teenage years, um, what vaccines um, are, are recommended? So all, all vaccines, <laughs> all vaccines, <laughs> all vaccines. So um, every every location has their own timing differently. Of course, the, the schedule we have in Nigeria is different from the, I think it's different from Canadian schedule, US schedule, UK schedule. So it's based on what schedule. I think the reason is because some places have their own um, combined that different pharmaceuticals may combine. But like from hepatitis, the bacteria, the tetanus, um, those are the basic ones. You know, for the BCG, we also get in Nigeria when they're born. And then like every single one of them, of course, you have to keep um, you have to keep updating it to make sure that they're, because you have to keep mounting immunity, your body has enough to be able to cope. And of course, when they get older, now you're talking about the meningitis one uh, vaccination. We're talking about the HPV, which is for cervical cancer and other cancers for both male and female. So trying to protect that towards when they, when they become teenagers. But otherwise, like every single vaccine is recommended because otherwise, this is why we're here today. Like if we didn't get out the vaccines, then, like measles, when we have measles outbreak, it's because of, mostly because of those that were not vaccinated. But every single like vaccine is recommended depending on what schedule they're using where you are. And of course, the flu vaccine for those that get flu vaccine and COVID vaccine for those who are old enough to get it. Going back to the HPV vaccine, why is that particularly important? So, because oral cancer, tobacco cancer, they were trying to get them early before kids actually start having sex. Because we used to assume that if we give you later on the exposure to the getting the vaccine actually protects you before. So we're not sure what our teenagers are going to start doing. So we're trying to give it to them earlier to prevent them or protect them at the time. So the earlier, the better for them. So that's why we started giving it earlier. So now I think it's down to like problem between nine and 14 years. So that way we're not having a lot of like cancer, just general cancer down the line because we didn't catch them early. But would you recommend the hit date, really? Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I think it's one or two doses, but yeah. Is it one or two? I don't think you've done it. It's given out 12 years anyway. I don't know. Yeah, because one of mine got two, the other one got one. So I think it depends. That's one thing that bothers you most or you're worried about might happen in terms of your child getting sick. What illnesses that you hear about are you really worried about? Oh, they might get. Does that make sense? Because I know some people might tell me they're worried about my child spiking a fever. I might say they're worried about them getting appendicitis or... I think the one that worries <clears throat> worries me particularly is it's not really uh, organic. It's, it's the fact that kids get um, diagnosed with, you know, ADHD or things like that pretty early and they hook them up on all these medications. And I, I kind of worry about that because it's very easy. It, it, it comes usually from their teachers or people that see them through the day. And yeah. I tend to push back because I every now and then, but at what point do I start worrying that this is actually a problem that I need to look into? Yeah. I think there here, there are a few, I think there's some reasons that I noticed they do that. One, African-Americans or black people are more likely to be uh, diagnosed with ADHD versus uh, other population because one, 
Like even when you're trying to be like a normal kid and active and playing or happy and making noise, they see you as a noise maker. They don't give you room to be able to like express yourself normally or like that. So they, when you're boxed into that, they say you're being disruptive, then they want you to get evaluated and assessed. And when you now get evaluated and assessed, sometimes when you come to even age, there's so many more options before medication. There's like helping you structurally organize yourself. There's going to a psychology or someone that can help you structure or like counseling the option before you go to medication. But now, because, but because there's not enough counselor, psychologists, or giving like 504 that can give you, that can give you some support to get them without medication. A lot of doctors are jumping from that to medication. And that's what they mean. They're not allowing kids like give them support. Like a seven year old is going to be a seven year old, a nine year old is going to be a nine year old. You just need to be able to help them. Everybody's brain is different. But being able to help them know how to organize in their in the way their brain understand, they don't give them room to do that. And they just like give medication and that's what they have to do. Because and then some other parents too, it depends on what how many kids you have and what kind of support you have and how much you know. Because if they tell you your child A is way more disrupting than child B, you're comparing both of them. So now you're thinking child B has something wrong and needs medication to calm down. But it's because child B is not being handled or given the support they need based on how child B is. So I think that's one of the reasons. I know there might be kids that really have ADHD, but I think sometimes it's overdiagnosed based on multiple reasons. And I'm medicated too. I personally think it's, it's overdiagnosed. And I think the struggle for parents is you don't want something bad to happen to your kid. You don't, mm-hmm. you know, you want to be sure that, you know, if you're saying this is not what's going on, that you're, you're, you're 100% sure and not letting the kid just not thrive. Um, mm. But I feel like, there is more, there's more of a role of being an advocate for the kid these days, especially when he's they're given that diagnosis out of the blue, just because the teacher thinks the patient, the, the kid has some mm-hmm. How do we yeah. advocate strongly in, in this environment? And, and, you know, from our own, you know, like you said, you, they, they take them, they recommend seeing a doctor and all that. And then the, the kid ends up on medication. You know, how do we, what, what steps do we take? What things do we do? to manage this on our own, so to speak. Um, like, who do we go to see? What kind of, do we schedule an uh, evaluation by a counselor first and then do something else or do something else that does not involve medications? What, what kind of things can we do as parents? I think it's one about being aware of what your options are because it's knowing what the options are. I had a doctor that, uh, that mentioned what one of the families that was saying that when the first time she went, they recommended medication. And she said that's not what she wanted. So she had to do a step back because she knew what her options were. So I think it's not what the options No, The other thing is that you might know the option, but there's nothing available. Because some of these like uh, counselors, you may not have, there's not enough counselors to serve the kids that need help. So that now becomes a problem. So even though you might have insurance covering a certain period, a certain amount, you might need to get a private one because the ones that are available to you, the ones that your insurance might cover is not available. But other things that I feel like now with the advent of like, online, so many things on YouTube, you can actually watch some people's videos and see how they're helping their kids organize. Because it might be as simple as saying, okay, so here you have a problem with organizing yourself. So now I'm going to have you in the evening when you come back from school, when you're done, pack up your bag, do this, this, and this before you can sleep. So the next day, you're not going to forget something. Because one of my kids, like, they've come multiple times, maybe no badge or forget this and that. And we're starting to see what's the problem. And about, so now they said that you're, you're, Maybe your papers are not complete. Why are you not submitting? It's about all the parents being involved. So this is what I need to do. On Saturday, we're going to go through and see what you need to do. And then on Sunday, you're getting ready. And then on Monday, when you get to school, 
you're not, they're not going to call because you forgot to do what you did not do. So the, because some people have like organizational issues, being able to organize, I don't really know how to do that, but it's about stepping back to see what's the point. Because there's, there's some books, there's some online. I feel like there's a whole lot of YouTube and everything out that you can find so many things that say, okay, this is what my child needs help with. What resources can I find? And then start with the free ones while we're waiting for the council, the other ones they're going to pay for to help us. It's going to be a lot of work, but those are some things that help. Um, hello, I have a question and <laughs> it's going to be a little bit. Hi, this is Felix. Hi, uh, I have a question and I, it's kind of an advice on how to approach various things. Um, most of us in the West, we are Africans in terms of the way we do African things. If you, if you understand what I mean or the way we approach things are quite different. And sometimes even when trying to raise our kids or trying to take care of them, we kind of have the African approach or we're kind of very cautious not to reveal several things. I can give an example of something that happened to me personally. And when my next kid, I was raising my next kid, I became very cautious about what I say in front of doctors and other people. When my kid was a little younger, I took him to his pediatrician and I was talking about like saying things about how he was progressing in various things and what he was not progressing in. The next visit, somehow my pediatrician thought there was something really wrong with him and kind of put him on a kind of list. And I was like, what? Hold on. I was just trying to explain things. And that incident really got me to hold back. And when it comes to my daughter, I barely say anything. But I want to take care of my daughter. I want to help her. But I'm worried about if I just say something or try and show girls being girls or boys being boys. And also the fact that we are not just Africans, but black people. And like it or not, we are treated differently. It's unfortunately, but it is the way it is. Any advice on how do you approach that line between trying to get information to help your kids and not giving information to find yourself, your child being put in a or in a list for HDHD or autism spectrum or something like that, when I feel it's a little like too much. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Even I had a problem with one of my kids too in back in Ohio, but I think because I knew about pediatrics, I had to reward what I was saying because I started thinking she, I don't remember, was it, I think it was when it comes to speaking, I had complained about, I think it was my last one, was delayed. I was like, I wasn't here and I said a lot of things. And the, the, the doctor was trying to, they was, was hearing it as something different. Like we need to be there. I said, no, this is how it. I know every kid is different. This is how it, this is what I'm worried about. I think one of it is one, we don't have a lot of representation for them to understand how we think and what we are trying to say, which is one of the problems. Because how, like you mentioned now, trying to say, um, this is what I'm worried about and they hear completely different. How the, uh, an African person is going to say something different, how a white person is going to and perceive to because that's how they were brought up. I think some things that might help is actually the awareness and education. Because one, you can go in and say, oh, I'm worried about my child not doing this, but I also know there's an age range where this, this is expected, right? So maybe my child is uh, supposed to be walking by, uh, my child is two years old and they are not walking, but I know the range to walk maybe between one and three. Here's what I'm worried about. And if there's some more I should be doing now, I don't want to start medication, but I want you to give me my options. When you say it in terms of, because you already know some, and you want them to give you options, they are less likely to balk and give you what they want you to, what they want you to do because now you're having a conversation 
versus them giving you the treatment. But it involves like us doing work on our own part too, because they're not like outright. I have my kids have pediatricians too. And I know sometimes that they want to give me recommendation. I said, no, that's not what I need. This is what I know what the options are, but this is what I'm not ready for now. And if they're trying to give me medication for what I'm not, I changed pediatricians, I've changed before. And I'm doing it because I know they're optional, but because some of them are not willing to understand our point of view and give us what the options we have. I don't know if that makes sense. Because yeah, that really helped. Thank you. Yeah, because it's kind of crazy where my son almost got put on the autism spectrum when I was just trying to explain how he was ahead of other people in doing certain things. Like my son loves math and computers. And when it comes to even like he's in a great school, but he kind of does like high school or middle school math. He likes doing that a lot. And I was trying to explain that he has been doing that since he's been little. And all of a sudden, they just put him in and they're trying to put him in an autism spectrum. And I was like, what's going on? So that's why I was asking. And let another another person that's neutral do their own assessment and see if you're getting, I don't know, you do one of the opinions and see if they're getting the same thing that you can now decide based on that. So, yeah. I have a quick addition on that. Depending on the state you are, it's in my life, being on that spectrum and getting that diagnosis, even if you're the autism, the, I mean, the, um, the child is sometimes um, it presents as to him being a genius or something like that. Um, for instance, uh, I know, you know, Elon Musk, all these people, and depending on your state, when you get that diagnosis, you actually get a lot of assistance uh, with things. So it's not always uh, like a bad sentence. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you can just look and see, like I know in California, you you you, you know you get um, a lot of uh, a lot of tools. There's regional center. They offer them. Um, uh, they pay for the recreational activities and things like that. And and you know sometimes there's a, like here in California we have medical. Um, sometimes they get you know. They are in coverage. Uh, they don't have to pay copays and things like that. Uh, regional center will also pay all your copays. And uh, when people, when they have these services like ABA, uh, if you have uh, if you have a copay, regional center will take care of it. So there are a lot of, um, and if it's the uh, the spectrum where they are, you know, like that, you have to kind of like take care of them, you know, 24 seven, and it's affecting your work. They will actually cover you. They will actually pay you to take care of your child. And, and, and by the time they're 18, they become normal because you actually put, you know, you took the, you made that your job and you were not insecure. You could still have, it could, I mean, you, you could still have money. Um, and and give your child that opportunity without the stigma to to be normal. So not you know, in some way, not it's not a really a negative thing when you get that diagnosis. Explore it, look it through your state and see all the benefits you can get. Um, um, and uh, um, I mean Einstein and all these people had autism, you know, and and it was diagnosed and it didn't stop them from making the uh, uh, changes of the change. I mean, the difference in the world and, and still known to bury. But I think if there's stigma 
and you don't have to take care of that high IQ or whatever. Yeah. At some point, uh, that's from my Raymond's view, we might even start affecting them from being productive in life, even if they're high functioning. And you think, oh, who knows all the <laughs> chemistry and math, but they can't still adapt socially and produce anything. So, yeah, that, that's my two cents. Yeah. And I think here, they actually like developmental specialists, development behavior specialists that do those diagnosis research. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if like regular pediatricians can do that alone. They can refer you to one that does those assessments. So they're specialists. I think it, I think it's a matter of being sure that, you know, it's not just someone that's had a long day and sees your kid at the end of the day, just because it, it does happen in, in medicine here where a physician is just like any human being exhausted and gets lazy in his thinking process and just places a diagnosis on your kid. So, you know, you just want to be sure and be an advocate for which we should be anyways for our children. When someone brings up something like, oh, your kid has, uh, is on the spectrum or has this or has that, you know, they're, 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 there's an algorithm to how you get to that diagnosis. And I think it's important for us to, to know, like um, Kiru says, uh, said our options before we, we say, yes, this is truly what's happening because there've been people misdiagnosed. So I think it's important, you know, to, 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 to follow, follow your, um, whatever algorithm it is before you get to that final diagnosis. And it's, it's not definitive until it's definitive. That's just what I'm saying. I think there's another uh, lazy eye wandering eye and double vision. So I'm not sure about the eyes, but I know a lot of the lazy eyes, some of them have to do more with muscles than nutrition alone. I know uh, something about like vitamin A and the eyes, but when you're worried about like lazy eye, it's more ophthalmology. I'm not, it's not very, it's not my scope. I'm not sure about that, but I know it has more to do with like the muscles because one muscle is like weaker than the other one. And it's not moving accordingly, but I think my best for like an ophthalmologist to actually check. I'm not sure about that one. And then elaborate on meningitis, especially newborn and childbirth. So the newborn uh, age, I mean, this age is very, so newborn is actually more difficult than the toddlers. Of course, newborns, the way we easily diagnose it is any newborn who is younger than three months automatically gets blood work and urine testing and like well, the spinal like lumbar puncture because they're worried about meningitis. Yeah. But also other things to watch out for, the fever, your child that used to eat before all of a sudden looks tired, sleepy, and not wanting to eat as much, very whiny and crying, um, wanting to be left alone and not picked up. Because when you pick them up, bending their neck causes that pain along the back. So you notice that way, like babies actually want to pick up and help. But one of the meningitis, once you touch them, they are very whiny and they cry because you're bending either their legs or their neck. That's why they get uncomfortable. You might also notice the rise. Some of them might also be vomiting because it has to do with the head. They may notice the vomiting in them. And then toddlers about the same thing goes to the fever, they're not wanting to move their neck, wanting to lay around, having their eye, um, not wanting to move their body, just preferring to lay down versus actually be their usual toddlers and walking out. Well, it might be anything, it might be just a fever and a headache, but that's when uh, assessing them, doing the testing, trying to bend their neck and be extremely Then we think about, oh, I need to do it, tough in this kid. You see, we don't have any concerns from meningitis. I think those are the small, um, those are the main things that would think about just, just to add to that just because we've been seeing this a lot here in south carolina meningitis and college kids um so um there there are vaccines that um protect um that are protective and they, they really do work um um unfortunately the past this summer has been one of those summers where we've seen quite a few cases of meningitis in in um college kids because obviously the vaccine um acceptance rate has gone down um, well, in most most colleges don't accept you 
or accept your kid into their school if they're not fully vaccinated, at least here in South Carolina. So just to be aware, as some of our kids get to that college, those college years, that they are all up to date with their vaccines. And it does happen quite a bit. It's not always your know, bacterial meningitis that, that we see here in, at least that I've seen here. It's sometimes viral meningitis, but viral meningitis can be can be um, serious. You can't vaccinate for all viruses. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen a few enterovirus um, meningitis here. Uh, one was really bad. Um, thankfully, the kid did okay. Uh, we saw a couple um, bacterial strep pneumonia um, uh, meningitis um, that you can be vaccinated for, um, well, at least not with all the um, with all the um, serotypes, but enough of it to give you protection. And then um, the most serious ones that we tend to see are in this Neisseria and those that haven't been vaccinated at all for Neisseria meningitis. And typically, because some of this, <clears throat> some of this um, folks in colleges are young, then they're not going to present always like your 80-year-old or your 70-year-old uh, person. Sometimes they just walk into the ER and they're walking and the ER physician is like, oh, he has a headache, oh, he has a fever. And oh, it's thinking that there's nothing going on and just gives them some Tylenol, gives them some fluids and then sends them home. And then the next day, the thing with meningitis is that it's not, it's not something that happens um, and just happens slowly. It's almost like you're walking, 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 and then you're on top of the hill and you just fall straight down. And that's how it happens. And once you fall straight down, it gets really bad. Um, some, some, most, a lot of people, no matter what your age is, don't, the mortality for it is really high when you fall that fall over that steep hill. So if, if your kids are approaching college age and they haven't been vaccinated for meningitis, please, please, um, get them vaccinated because, um, there is a high, higher prevalence amongst kids in college, um, high school, not high school kids, but mostly kids in college because they share dorms, they share things, um, they're close to each other. So that's my own take on meningitis. I think one one thing we've been seeing a lot to now is exposure to like drugs, especially cannabis, because it's been legalized in a couple of places and like other drugs. And it's across the ages, especially like even the kid, the toddler and the younger ones that are picking like people's THCs because it looks like gummy. And then as they grow, like kids in schools between eight and 10 years, having their friends bring some from home because they're exposed in the house or maybe teens trying to be teens to test to taste one of those things. So that's something to kind of think about now because no child is like too young to talk to, I mean, except the toddlers, no child is too young to talk to. I mean, I've seen kids come in and it's just one dose and they're literally like their whole body shaking because everybody manifests differently. I've seen one that was completely stoned, they look completely out of body because he got like a brownie from a friend to taste. There's like a blanket thing like, I don't care who your best friend is, but please don't taste anything from anyone in school. Because some of those kids don't even know what they brought, but there's been a higher, like, higher rate of like kids being exposed to like THC, cannabis, and so many even Snoop Dogg. <laughs> what is hope? Hopefully, no. No, I know we don't have a lot of time left, um, but I can attest to that because again, it's very unfortunate that the numbers of people that were coming that we're seeing here, um, in 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 our practice that are teenagers and well, I don't see I don't see uh, pediatric ID folks, but I see folks at 18 and above, and there's been a number of people that have come in between the ages of 18 and 25 with pretty bad um, um, infective endocarditis, which is infection of the heart, and spinal osteomyelitis with um, very big abscesses and near paralysis, and brain um, infections and eye infections just from, you know, popping from 
um, I, drug use. The prevalence of drug use in high schools, I'm not talking college, here in um, Greenville, it's pretty high. Um, and middle schools, um, it, it's pretty high. So they start from middle school. Uh, I mean, some of them think that vaping, they start off with vaping because, you know, vaping might, them is benign, but vaping can cause a lot of issues. And then from vaping, they move on to, to cannabis. And then from cannabis, they move on to cocaine, to methamphetamine, which is the most uh, commonly used drug here. And before you know it, they're, you know, they're sick and in the hospital. And then when they come in, they're like, you know, their parents are there and they're like, we didn't know this was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it's something to be vigilant about. Um, one thing you could do is if, you're, if, if your kid is in middle school, uh, when they come home, um, you don't, you know, they like their privacy, but every now and then you could say, not in an intrusive way, examine their arms, their legs, look for needle marks anywhere, um, anything that's suspicious. Usually the, most people inject into their, uh, into the fossa here, or there are some people inject into their legs just because they can cover up and their parents can't see it. Um, so, uh, like I said, it's, it's very, it's a very sad situation here because we've had a number of cases, um, some people losing their ability to walk just because infection travel to the spine, someone getting a heart replacement at the age of 21, a valve replacement at the age of 21. Imagine that. Um, so it's, it's, it starts in middle school here, here, you know, like, um, most middle schools have issues with the drug use. Uh, all you can do as a parent is, you know, do as a parent and then be, be vigilant. Yeah. Pretty sad. Yeah. Pretty, pretty problem. I have a quick question, and this is maybe out of um, out of point, but I wanted to find out because I'm out of curiosity. Does fentanyl have any medicinal reasons or why? Because I know it's a drug people take, which is uh, ridiculous, but I'm wondering because I look at it this way that if it was invented by somebody, there had to be a medicinal reason why it was invented. So please enlighten yeah. me. Yeah, actually, it's one of the it's one of the most common drugs I use in the ED because it has it works pretty well for pain, and so for kids that come in with broken arms and legs, even before they get an IV, we have fentanyl we can use in the nose, and for kids we have to put to sleep like into into bed, which means we're taking over how they breathe, put a tube down their throat. It's one of the medications you can use to maintain them so they're not feeling the pain and they actually asleep while you're taking over their whole breathing and their breathing machine. It works very well and it does a good job. Actually, the ones we use in hospital, because they're not using it for a long period of time, there's less likely being now the addictive property. And when they've been at the hospital and fentanyl for a long time, we actually give them another medicine to try to wean that thing off of their system before we discharge them. So when it's like one of the most one of the most helpful when it comes to medical for pain, it's quick on before they get IV, before they traumatize them, especially with kids with cooking, and it helps a lot. The problem is that some of the fentanyl we have outside of the hospital are street fentanyl. So they're not like clean. It's always mixed with multiple things. So now that becomes multiple things that can make it more addictive that makes the kid keep coming back to, or whoever keep coming back to buy fentanyl, thinking it, but it's a whole mix that gets them hooked on it. But medically, it is very helpful. One of the most helpful medicines that we use actually. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Just to, just to quickly add to that, one of the, um, the true, the, big epidemic we have here with opioids is not because people just get opioids in the ER or something. A lot of our kids play sports um, and there's been situations where people just get injured and then they're they are needing 
pain medications to get better. And that usually starts uh, the sequence of um, addiction in, in a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, if your kid's playing sports and, you know, has an injury, that's something to, to, to bear in mind. Um, some, sometimes these opioids are overprescribed. So just, just to be careful as to how, how they are administered, because once they get hooked, um, that's where the problem typically starts. Most of our issues of opioid epidemic is normal people got one injury, went to the doctor, they gave them some medications, they started taking it, they went for more, got more, and then they got hooked. And then from that, it just snowballs into um, oxycodone, Pecoset, and then fentanyl and all that. So I think that's it. I mean, you can reach out to Nkiri, she's on the chat, you know, ask any questions you have. She has a really good uh, number of videos on Instagram and YouTube. Um, it's very, very informative and useful. So if you have any, um, any, it's just, it's like an encyclopedia of things that you can do. Yeah, I put the HPV, HPV vaccine schedule on, on the chart. Uh, yeah. Right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Chuka. Thanks, yeah. Thank you, Chuka. Thank you, Thank you, everyone. Thank you.